morning. It's a joy and a pleasure to be with you all uh, on this fine morning. Um, if you'd like to turn with me um, to 1 Peter chapter 1, uh, we'll begin by reading uh, the word of the Lord together. So that's 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, uh, and the text uh, will be from uh, verses 3 through to verse 7. So it's 1 Peter 1, uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 3 uh, to 7. <clears throat> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Let's come before him in prayer. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truthfulness. We thank you for the life that we have through it. We thank you for its proclamation of the gospel by which we are saved. We ask that this morning you would be gracious to us, that uh, you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you have to say to us this morning. We ask that you would speak to us through your word. And uh, I, I ask, Father, that you would be with me. Give me the words to say. Help me to say what is necessary to say and to not say uh, that which is harmful to your people. May I speak with grace and truth and love this morning. And uh, would you be with us through your spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so First Peter, First Peter chapter 1. Peter, uh, we find, is writing to a group of churches that he calls the dispersion. A group of little churches throughout Asia Minor. A group of churches facing imminent uh, persecution. And we find him writing here about the hope that they have. And so what is our greatest hope? Now, as humans, we have many hopes. We hope that it won't rain. We hope that we will get a job promotion. We have a faint hope that one day we will go traveling to some exotic location. But these hopes are fickle. They're wavering hopes that may or may not come to pass and they will eventually die out. But what Peter gives us here and what he arms these believers with is what he calls a living hope. A hope that is sure and steadfast, unwavering in the face of adversity. This is a hope born out of a deep joy in Peter. For Peter writes as one who has seen the life-changing effects of Jesus who has been raised from the dead. Peter has stood face to face with hopelessness as the rooster crowed for the third time proclaiming to him his own faithlessness. 
For Peter, the death of Christ was a bitter, bitter blow. For in the time of his Lord's greatest need, he could only tremble in fear. Yet that morning of the resurrection, with the words of the woman from the tomb ringing in his ears, he is not there, for he is risen. Peter saw with his own eyes and left in wonder, marveling at these things that have come to pass. Peter himself knew the effect of the risen Savior that he writes about here. When, though Peter forgot Christ in his hour of need, Christ did not forget Peter in his hour of need. For Christ came to Peter privately before anyone else. Peter knew and he understood the mercy of God as he spoke with his Lord and Savior. He knew the tender mercy of Christ as he was left with the charge to feed Christ's sheep. Peter's hope was reborn. No longer hope in his own achievements, in his own steadfastness, in his own faithfulness, but a hope resting upon his Savior alone. And it's because of this hope that Peter declares, Blessed be God, the Father, be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For a hope found in the living God is a living hope resulting in praise and glory to God alone. Out of this experience of Peter's, it is out of this experience of Peter's that he exhorts the Christians he, that he is writing to to stand firm in the face of adversity, for they will one day face, soon face much opposition. We can sense the fear rising among them, and he acknowledges, this, he acknowledges this later in the text. They knew that the noose was tightening. They knew that persecution was coming. And Peter knows what this is like. And we also may know what this is like. We may be tempted to deny Christ, as Peter has done, or to run from adversity, as those in the dispersion may be tempted to do. But in the face of these things, Peter exhorts us now to stand firm in the living hope that is ours. And we'll look at why we must hold fast to this living hope under three headings this morning. Firstly, God's salvation of us. Secondly, God's sustaining of us. And finally, God's refining of us. The reason we must hold on to this living hope is that God has saved us, that he is sustaining us, and that he is refining us. So beginning in verse 3, uh, let's read together. Blessed be God the Father and Lord of our Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What then is the basis for this living hope that Peter talks about? that he calls us to cling to. It is the mercy displayed to us in the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord, Savior, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This living hope is completely unlike any feeble, fleeting hope that we could ever have. This hope is far greater than anything we could ever conceive of. And we rejoice in that, and we cling to it, not because, not just because Christ lives, for he does indeed live, but because in him we also live. Peter says that we have been born again. This phrase, this phrase that once confused Nicodemus, how can one be born again? He questions Christ. How can a man when he, be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb? 
What does it mean for us to be born again? To be born again is not by our will, nor the will of any other man, but the will of God. It is by the working of the Spirit within us, renewing us, making us new, changing our hearts, changing them from hearts of stone to hearts of flesh. By the mercy of God, Peter declares to us in this passage that we are God's and he is ours. For by the working of the Spirit, we have been made into the new creation. And this new creation happens through the resurrection of the dead. For according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in being raised from the dead and ascending to heaven, Christ has now sent his spirit who dwells within us. For as Christ was raised from the dead, he has been called the first fruits of the new creation. He is the firstborn among many brothers who follow after him. He goes before us and then us with him. We were born of a natural descent into sin, fit only for death. But now, through the renewal of the Spirit, through being born again by the regeneration of God and by his mercy upon us through the resurrection of Christ, we have now been born of a spiritual descent, fit only for a life in all of its abundance with God. This should be a great source. Uh, this should be a source of great comfort to us. Our hope is based on the living triune God. Our salvation is not of ourselves, it is completely of the work of God. And as such, it is safe and secure and strong in Him. For just as God is forever unchanging, so too our salvation is forever unchanging. And we look back to the work of Christ on the cross, and we know that we have been presently saved in this day now, by the working of the Spirit. And we look forward to that day when Christ will return and he will bring to completion all that he has started in us. This is the beginning of the hope that we have in Christ. And if you do not know this peace and this hope, Christ says to you to come. He says, let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. For if you do not know Christ, if you do not know this being born again by the Spirit of God, come to him now. Lay your burdens at his feet. For you too can have a joyful hope for a future with God. So this is the first reason that Peter says that we should have a living hope in Christ. That it is God who has saved us. Secondly, he says in verse 4, that God is sustaining us. In verse 4, he has caused us to be born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter gives a second reason that we should, be take, that we should take comfort in our living hope. For very simply, this living hope is sure because it is God who sustains the same God who has renewed us, who has caused us to be born again, that same eternal, forever unchanging God is the God who now sustains us presently in this life. I once heard a critique of common evangelical evangelism. 
um, evangelism that I'm sure we've all heard and perhaps even participated in. The critique was a style of evangelism that seems so popular. It's like a law, gospel, law sandwich. That is, we tell people that they are sinners, which is true. We convict them with the law of God. And then once they you know, have become Christians, we, we say that you know, the only way to be relieved of this burden is to come to Christ. We say, you know, we, we give the gospel that he's died for them, that his blood covers them, that they now have a right standing before God. It's all true and good. And then we come back to the top layer of the sandwich and we say, no, you better live right. You'd better keep up. You have this name. You'd better, you'd better, you'd better buck up. And we just lay the law back on top of them. The only time that the gospel is preached is at the time of conversion. And the rest is up to us and our good works. But the question that arises, how much good works? What, what do I have to do? What kind of things do I have to do? Is it one chapter, two chapters, three chapters that I have to read? How long do I have to pray for? What kind of prayers do I have to pray for? How much good works do I need to be doing? What kind of life does this look like? But this is a hope built upon the instability of our works. But Peter provides a gospel-centered, biblical alternative to this. Notice where the emphasis of his encouragement is to these Christians and to us. He says that we have a living hope, that we have been born again, what firstly, to an inheritance, which is all good, and he says, that is kept in heaven for you. That is kept in heaven for you. And that we are by God's power being guarded through faith. And just as we can have a joyful surety of hope because of the origin of our salvation is in the working of God, we also can have joyful surety of hope because the sustenance of our salvation is not of ourselves either. It is from God. It is not a law, gospel law, way of doing life. This is a gospel-sustained, joyful living in the realities of God for us. Notice how Peter talks of our inheritance. There are a few things worthy to be pointed out here. Firstly, this in, an inheritance is inherently a gift. By its very nature, it is not something earned, but something gifted. This is the point that is inheritance. When we are joined to Christ, we are called his brothers. We are united to him, and all that is his is now ours. It is not something earned, but something gifted. This in, and this inheritance is God himself. The psalmist that we read says this. He says, that Whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. We might find ourselves envious of those who come into a lot of money, whose families have built up, been built up in a way that their financial situation is secure, seems to be set from birth. Yet the security is temporal. The stability is only of this world where moth and rust destroy. But our inheritance, on the other hand, our inheritance is kept in heaven for us where neither moth nor rust destroys. Secondly, look at how Peter describes our eternal inheritance. It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. We think of it in contrast to Israel's inheritance where God promised them a land. Their inheritance perished with, with invading armies, yet ours stands strong. 
Where Israel's inheritance was defiled due to sin, ours is undefiled because ours is due to the perfect righteousness of Christ. And where Israel's inheritance faded away in drought, ours is eternal and unfading. We have a reason to hope because our salvation is eternal, so too our inheritance is. Just as Israel were motivated by the promise of inheritance while they wandered in the desert, we too can be motivated by the promise of our inheritance as we wander through this world on our way to our heavenly home. It is no comfort to have an everlasting inheritance if we could lose it. We know the depths of our sin and misery, but Peter quells this fear, saying that our inheritance is kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. The same God that keeps our inheritance for us in heaven keeps and guards us. One commentator describes this guarding as a shielding, and that shield is faith. Faith in the promises of God. Faith in the trustworthiness of God. Faith in the work of God for us. Faith in the gospel. Paul says that this faith is a gift from God. For it is not the magnitude of our faith that saves us, but the content of our faith. The object of our faith is the person and work of Christ. Though our faith may seem fragile, take comfort in the fact that God will uphold you. He will sustain you until the end. His goodness, kindness, and mercy are displayed towards us as he draws us to himself. It is not the quality of your faith, it is not the greatness of your faith that saves you and that carries you on, but it is the content, the object of your faith that is Christ himself. I love what our confession says in chapter 17 on our perseverance here. It says, uh, in, in, in paragraph I'm just bear with me, it's a bit of a, bit of a read, but it's beautiful. Those, it says, whom God has accepted in the Beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit and given the precious faith of his elect unto, can neither totally nor finally fall from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be eternally saved, seeing the gifts and callings of God are without repentance, from which source he still begets and nourishes them in faith, repentance, love, joy, hope, and all the graces of the Spirit unto immortality. And though storms and floods arise and beat against them, yet they shall never be able to take them off that foundation and rock by which, uh, which by faith they are fastened upon, notwithstanding through unbelief and the temptations of Satan, thereupon uh, this, the, the, sorry, the sensible sight of the light and love of God may for a time be clouded and obscured from them, yet he is still the same. They shall be sure to be kept by the power of God unto salvation, where they shall enjoy their purchased possession, they being engraved upon the palm of his hands and their names having been written in the book of life from all eternity. That's chapter 17, paragraph 1, if you want to go back over it. That was a bit of a mouthful. But what a joy this is to us. What a peace it brings in times of doubt. That we shall enjoy the, our purchased possession because we have been engraved upon the palm of his hands. Their names, our names, having been written in the book of life from all of eternity. What peace it brings in times of doubt. And we will continue on in this life, not because we are faithful, but because God is faithful. 
He will sustain you. We need not be envious of those whose inheritance is now, who do well in this life, for it will fade away. Our inheritance is eternal and is kept for us by God, who keeps us in his grace. Therefore, we have every reason to take comfort that ours uh, to take the comfort that is ours in Christ alone. And thirdly, the third reason uh, that Peter tells us to rejoice in our hope comes from verse 6. He says, In this you rejoice, in this hope you rejoice, in this salvation you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure we all, at some point in our lives, have related to Asaph in Psalm 73. We look around us and we see wickedness thriving. Those who delight in evil seem to prosper. He says in verse 4, For they have no pangs until death, Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. In verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. We can see the nature of man on full display in these people. For he says in verse 7 through 9, Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues struts through the earth. Many are tempted by this obvious success. Maybe we have felt the pull and the lure of a life full of opulence and luxury. Obviously, this life leads to ease and luxury, but it it works out for them. The churches that Peter is writing to feel this pressure. Looking around, they see opulence born from wickedness. They see success born from greed. And they can feel the pressure building as opposition towards Christianity begins to build. The people around them scoff and speak with malice towards them. The words of the psalmist are likely upon these people's lips. All in vain, they might think, I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long, I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. Perhaps you too feel like this. For we are ever at war with the flesh, with the things of this world. Sin always entices us. Perhaps you also feel the weight of ridicule as those who hate Christ malign his name. We do not face the same persecution as those in Peter's day did. But we do face trials and tribulations of many sorts, whether it is inward in our own temptation, our own sin, whether it is outward from those who ridicule the name of Christ. But it is to comfort us amidst these dark days that Peter writes these words of encouragement. These words to stand firm, to hold fast, to rejoice in these times of sufferings. For you see, we can rejoice in our hope even amidst suffering because it is through these things that God refines us and our faith. So there are three things that I want to point out to as reasons to hope amid these fiery trials that we may face. Firstly, Paul says that, uh, sorry, Peter says that these trials, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Firstly, these trials are temporary. Though trials may last this whole lifetime, 
Though we may have unending distress in this life, they are still temporary in the light of eternity. They may persist now, but they will be swallowed up when Christ returns in victory to consummate his kingdom. And we can have a hope that though the world may seem to be against us, all will eventually pass away, and the fullness of our salvation will be revealed. For what has been started by God will surely be brought to completion. Secondly, he says that um, these trials, they refine us. In verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. Peter says that these trials, they are necessary. It is not by accident that we suffer. In fact, it is God's will that we should suffer. He touches on that later in the letter. One commentator says that the New Testament sees sufferings as, a road, uh, as the road believers must travel into God's kingdom. As a road of suffering, as a road of distress. Though sufferings are necessary, we should not think that they are enjoyable. Peter is not telling us to rejoice in our sufferings. He's not telling us to rejoice in the event of our sufferings, for sufferings are horrible. They're grievous. They're not fun. They're not sufferings themselves that we rejoice in, but is the hope that we possess through and despite our sufferings that he tells us to rejoice in. Rejoice in the hope that is ours, of our inheritance that is to come, of our salvation that is in Christ. The point that Peter is making is that in our suffering, God is working out his will for our lives. And his will is that we would be sanctified that we would be made more and more into the likeness of Christ. He goes on in verse 7 to describe the sanctification. He says that trials are necessary so that our faith would be tested, so that it would be refined. We should rejoice in the hope we have amidst trials because we know that these trials refine our faith. Just as fire burns up all all that is unnecessary in gold, leaving only the purest behind. And just as fire separates impure alloys from the real thing, so too trials are a fire that burns off all that is unnecessary in our faith and separates off impure parts to leave only behind a pure faith. This faith of ours is far more precious than any gold on this earth. God may be able, uh, gold may be able to buy the most opulent lifestyle here imaginable, but it will fade and it will perish. The faith of the saint results in a glory far greater than any here on earth. For do not fear trials, do not fear tribulations, do not fear that through these you will lose your faith. For even Peter, who denied Christ and suffered immense trials beyond what any of us would suffer, was refined by these trials. Fire does not burn up gold, it refines it. Trials do not burn up our faith. It did not burn up Peter's faith. Trials refine our faith, and they make it stronger. When faced with the same trials later in life, Peter stood firm and proclaimed Christ even to death. This is the purpose of our trials, that we would be refined, that we would be made more and more like Christ. That we would stand firm in the gospel by which we are saved. That we would become more gracious, more humble, more displaying of the fruits of the Spirit in our lives, that we would glorify Christ, glorify God with our lives. Which brings me to my final point that's, um, that we should note about this section here, that these trials, they glorify God. Trials glorify God. 
And Jesus says in Matthew 5, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. When we suffer trials as Christians, we are joining the suffering of Christ. And in doing so, it glorifies Christ's name. The praise, the glory, the honor mentioned here are not what we receive for our reward in heaven is bound up in the work of Christ. They are not what we receive, but the praise, the glory, and the honor are what we lift up to God. These are found at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns when he finds us faithful, when we stand before him and he says to us, well done, good and faithful servant. We are found to have been preserved in the faith and God is seen to be faithful in all that he is. His word is found to be true. And we will lift up our voices with saints from all over before the throne, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So take heart when you're faced with many trials. Stand firm, knowing that God supplies all we need for life and godliness, including the faith that we have to come to him. Just as he washed you clean by the blood of Christ, he will also guard you and keep you until the end. We have a hope that is beyond this world, a hope that never perishes, for it is a hope and the eternal God over all. May his name be blessed among us all. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that your name would be glorified in our midst. We ask that our lives would be lived in a way that blesses you. We ask that, we, that our lives would be lived as a sacrifice to you that you delight in. We thank you that our perseverance in this life, our perseverance to the end, is not of our own work. We have not been saved and then left to it, but you promise that you are with us to the end. You have saved us by the blood of Christ, and you now sustain us by the Spirit. We thank you for these things. We ask that you would constantly remind us of them, remind us of your faithfulness towards us, May we have faith to stand strong in the face of trials. May we have faith to proclaim your name to all peoples. May you sustain us in all things, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.